Super Scoreboard. Women in Football Podcast. Inspiring the next generation of girls in the game. Welcome to Super Scoreboard's Women in Football Podcast with me, Joe Hendry. And me, Callum Bell. And we are from home, finally. Yeah, we can see each other's faces for the first time. You can see my massive nose on Zoom. We've just talked about that, so you can see your massive nose and my massive pluck on my massive nose. It's a combination of massive noses. Um, (laughs) And we are inside this evening, obviously, on probably the most beautiful day of the year. You've got your blinds shut, but there is a stunning blue sky behind those blinds. Yeah, I had to close them because it makes me want to go outside. (laughs) It's like we have to do this podcast tonight, so don't look at how nice it is out there. It is so beautiful. Um, We actually have got a lot to talk about just in terms of football. I felt like for the last three, four weeks, you know, there's not been a lot of movement. Everything's kind of been focused on lockdown and on health and safety, quite rightly. But this week, there seems to have been so much going on. I think one of the main things that we saw was the the top flight down south. The women's game has um, is over. Um, They've still had to decide how they're going to you know, dish out titles, promotions, relegations. But I think it was really, really decisive and it brought it to the front of everyone's mind, doesn't it, that, you know, the next step could be happening now. Yeah, it, it seems like a really strange decision in the same week that the um, men's game in the same league has decided they're going to restart. It seems like a, a weird time to come to that conclusion. But at the same time, um, it's so difficult to decide these things. It's not an easy thing to do. We don't know the inner workings of it. Obviously, they have their reasons. Um, but like you say, it's strange that they've made the decision, but also strange that they made it without knowing what the next step is. Who's mm. going to go where? Who's going to drop down league? Who's going to come up a league? It must be quite uncertain for all the players and the teams and the managers and whatnot. Absolutely. And, and amongst all that as well, there was the announcement from UEFA that um, the women's Euro qualifiers have been given dates as well for September, um, which was a big disappointment you know, back in March when we thought we were going there and having done so well, um, to now have those dates actually firmed up is super exciting. Gives us something to look forward to, finally. <laughs> finally. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, in, on one hand, a league's been finished. We know there's not going to be any football in that league. But on the other hand, at least we've got something to look forward to, like you see in September. Um, and fingers, fingers crossed that it goes ahead like they say it's going to. Yeah, and and as well as that, you know, in terms of the profile of the game, we found out this week that the BBC Alba will be broadcasting the Women's Bundesliga as well, which is a fantastic league. Um, and for us to be having it, having the ability to watch it um, live in this country is is a great platform for for fans to get involved, isn't it? Yeah, any more live football that we can get our hands on, we'll take. And I did like the tiniest bit of digging before this, and I believe that more German teams cumulatively have won the, the, the UEFA Women's Champions League than any other. Um, so the standard there must be pretty great. Um, I can't pretend to be an expert on it, but hopefully this time next year when we've watched every single game, I will be. Yeah, absolutely. And someone who knows lots about raising the profile of the women's game is our guest on this pod, which is Laura Montgomery. And I think this would be a really good point just to get Laura involved. Super Scoreboard. Women in Football Podcast. Inspiring the next generation of girls in the game. Laura Montgomery, thank you so much for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure to speak to you. And we're so sorry to have brought you out of the magnificent sunshine today to sit in here and talk to us. But we really appreciate it. How are you? 
yeah, I'm good, thanks. I think I think we're all, and it's obviously very challenging times for everybody, but I think the fact that most of it's been in the sunshine has certainly helped. Yeah, lockdown, it's definitely been challenging, hasn't it? Like, for everybody in lots and lots of different ways, I think that we're all finding it pretty difficult, but the, the weather has absolutely helped us in a big way, I would say. Yeah, <laughs> very lucky. We dread to think, you know, and God forbid this ever comes back, but, you know, this has happened actually in the winter months when it's dark and, you know, people mm. couldn't go the back door and let the kids out or go out a walk, you know, I think it would have been much more challenging. Um, you know, it's challenging mentally for everybody anyway, but I think, you know, in the winter it really, really would have been a, an even bigger crisis than it is just now. And you're still working as well, you know, how much has that been good for sort of me and Callum were saying you know it's really keeping us focused as well and having that sort of outlet during the day during the week and having something to focus on how much has that helped you as well? Yeah definitely you know I've got no doubt there's some people you know that are working that are probably you know perhaps you know a wee bit jealous of, of colleagues that are furloughed or whatever but you know I certainly think that you know we're very fortunate we're in a position for those of us that can still work that, that we can you know there's a lot of people in very very difficult um, situations financially and otherwise but I think for me it's been good to have that normality you know as much as talking to your colleagues via video conferences normality but um, yeah I mean it's, it's definitely helped it's tough as well because you know the, the workload um, you know, it can still be quite heavy, you know, particularly when maybe some colleagues have are, are on furlough and you're, you're trying to do a little bit more. But, you know, it's, it's been fantastic to get up and still have, it's bizarre for me saying that, but I have work to go to every single day. And of course, we know you from changing the landscape of women's football in Scotland, but your, your day job just now, you work for Hibs as well. How much of a contrast is that for you in terms of, you know, those sort of two aspects to your life because I guess your job at HIP, I mean, you must just be absolutely rushed off your feet because it's two, two massive undertakings that you have on the go. Yeah, it is, but, you know, life's always been like that for me for the past kind of 22 years. You know, I've always had, you know, a full-time professional job. If anything, it, it almost used to be tougher because I used to combine those two things and playing, you know. So if anything, yeah. as the playing bit dropped off, life did get a little bit easier, but probably easier in terms of I got a little bit more time to do all the stuff for Glasgow City that I wanted to do but I'm just used to you know my entire adult life has been having two jobs you know one paid and one without but you know when the one that you don't get paid for is your absolute passion then it's it's never really a hardship to kind of have the drive to do it. And you talked about it being your passion there how much are you missing that uh, that aspect of your life Glasgow City and and not getting to see them play or or be part of the day-to-day of it I guess you still get to be involved somehow from home but I guess it's not quite the same. It's, it's, it's not the same it's not the same just in terms of you know there's not a game to go to but the kind of business end and the planning and the work doesn't really change you know you know really the the smallest aspect of my role at Glasgow City is is actually watching the team play you know sometimes there's an occasion where um I could do without the game being on because I've, I've literally you know I've literally got that much to do you know so I you know I spend hours every evening whether it's on the phone or on email or you know on my laptop doing stuff so it's always kind of been 100 miles an hour. So it's not, I mean, it's certainly calmed down a bit because obviously we don't have games. You know, we would have been incredibly busy with the Champions League organisation, which hasn't happened to date. But, you know, still, you know, I'm going to come off this, um, you know, call with you guys and spend the next year doing Glasgow City stuff. So, you know, it's it's calmed down, but not. Um, it's certainly not, certainly not gone away. I mean, football has been your life. How how much do you miss playing the game? I know you're still fully immersed in it, but do you miss playing? Yeah, I, I didn't initially. I was asked this recently. I, I never missed playing at the start when I stopped. I think because it had been 
I think also because mentally I was prepared for it. You know, I think most people when they retire, you know, if you get the opportunity to choose when you retire, it's you can prepare for it mentally. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's much easier. You know, I, I feel for the people that have horrendous injuries and they're kind of not ready at that point. So I, I decided at the start of the season that I did retire that I was going to do it. So I kind of had a whole season where I was, I was geared up for it. I knew that was my last cup game. I knew that was my last Champions League game. You know, I was kind of ready for it. And then at the end, it was almost... Um, it was just I was kind of on to the, the kind of next driving thing which is be able to do more of the things that I'd wanted to do that you know the training four nights a week had prohibited um, because I couldn't spend as much time you know growing the club off the field as, I, as I'd wanted to um, so I think I, I definitely didn't miss it at all you know now now I, I probably do you know I, I, I miss I miss just you know the keeping fit and that being part of playing football but um, you know, scarily, I've I've not kicked a ball in over ten years. You know, since the day I stopped, I've I've, I've never played again. So, um, and probably I shouldn't. Mm-hmm. I'd probably just fall over myself because I think, as everyone says, you know, your your body doesn't behave the, the way you expect it to. You know, your mind thinks you can still do stuff that you can't. So it's probably good that I just I just avoid it. <laughs> You'll have, that's the thing as well, but you'll have this natural fitness that you just probably keep your whole life as well that I wouldn't be surprised if you could just turn your hand back to it. That's the way it goes most of the time, isn't it? Yeah, you do have a natural fitness. Um, it's kind of weird. I used to go running with my, uh, my partner, Kat, and when she was just a machine, she could run like, you know, marathons daily. But, you know, I would not do anything for months, you know, because of my work. And then I could go a three-mile run or a four-mile run, you know, at a decent pace. And I'd be like, God, how on earth can I do this? Mm-hmm. You used to always remind me, you know, if you've literally been an athlete for the vast majority of your life, you know, you don't you don't lose it dramatically. You still yeah. have that that base fitness. So I still have that, you know, if, if I go a jog or whatever, I can, you know, I can run for a few miles without kind of breathing out my backside. So I've still got it. But, yeah, <laughs> I definitely don't do it as much as I should. Have you managed in lockdown? Because like, I feel like everybody's taking up running and everybody's logging their runs. Have you taken anything up during lockdown, fitness-wise? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm actually probably doing more than I ever have because um, we all kind of knew lockdown was coming. So I'd, I'd gone down to visit uh, my, my family. So I mean, my brother and my mum and dad and his kids and everything. And, uh, and I, I kind of knew, like, we're all going to be stuck in the house. So I put them through just a kind of little circuit. And then we decided, so we all did it. Um, obviously, my mum and dad in their 70s were doing a very different type of circuit. Um, and we decided that every day we would do it on video calls. So we have done that every single day since lockdown. We have oh, a amazing. family call. It's only, you know, it's only like 15, 20 minutes, but, um, but it's great. The kids do it. My brother does it. You know, mum and dad do it. So it's been fantastic for keeping us all connected. You know, because then we'll have a wee chat. So we, we do that at lunchtime. Mm-hmm. And that's been a huge, that's amazing. It's such a huge part of this whole experience for everybody as well. Obviously, it's keeping healthy, is keeping in touch with everyone and trying to keep seeing everybody's faces and as much as you can. So that sounds like a, a really, really great way of doing that. I can't say that we've done that where our extent is like Joe Wicks in the morning and then my youngest just flakes out after 10 minutes and she's like, nah, that's enough. <laughs> No, it's been it's been particularly good for my you know my mum and dad because I think they really miss not seeing the grandkids you know so at least been able to see them for the two minutes that they go hiya before they kind of mm-hmm. jump the burpees or something has been pretty good. For those who don't know, because because part of it is a mystery to me as well. What what is your role kind of encapsulate at Glasgow City now? I know you 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 helped found the club and then, and you played. And um, what what do you do kind of day to day with the club now? Oh, everything. Um, <laughs> I mean, you could say, you know, my official title is club manager, but really I'm kind of like, you know, you could say chief executive of the club. So, 
you know, I'm involved in all kind of aspects of how the club runs and, you know, we're particularly, you know, the last couple of years, uh, particularly the last kind of 12 to 18 months, we made quite a big effort to get some other good people involved. So, you know, I can, you know, I've got some good people now that we can delegate stuff to, but, you know, I'm kind of involved in all the key decisions and will drive, you know, a lot of what that is, whether it's, you know, get involved and even get involved in the recruitment and contracts and obviously, you know, the finance, what our marketing approach is, what our business approach is, what our plans, just really what you would expect, you know, yes, I see a kind of chief exec to do. So just really the, you know, the kind of drive behind what, what we do as an organisation and whatever, whatever that may be. And when you guys first started out 22 years ago, establishing Glasgow City, have you exceeded what you thought you would do or is it going to plan or you know what was the plan are you guys are you guys well past that now I think as as bizarre as that sounds I think if you if I go back to that time then in kind of 1998 um do I think we've exceeded um expectations I'd probably say no I'd say we plan to do this but I'd say we were quite naive in our thinking at that point because we thought it would be easier than it was. So looking, mm-hmm. kind of, if I look back now, I'd say no. If, if I if I know now, sorry, if I knew then what I know now, I wouldn't have yeah. I wouldn't have expected that. Um, but kind of naively then, we were just really gung ho, really ambitious. We're going to do this. We're going to do that, and we fully believed it. But you know, with hindsight, it's you know, it's really you know, I will say it's absolutely amazing. Um, you know, some of the stuff that we've done, you know, given the constraints we've had financially, um, you know, given, I mean, it's it's incredibly challenging, you know, to win league titles. And, you know, it amazes me that we've won, you know, we've won 14 um, of the Premier League titles, but to do kind of 13 in a row with, you know, significant change in player personnel, you know, every season, you know, we've gone years, we've you know, we went through about a five-year spell where every single time we won a title, we then lost, you know, one or two of our best players and then we had to rebuild. I mean, there was a time, God, I think it was maybe the year I'd kind of just retired. Um, we lost loads of players. You know, the kind of core of the team disappeared. Uh, they went off to play professionally or a number of us retired. And there was a lot of talk around the game of that Spazgo City finish, you know. So we had absolute kind of rebuild from scratch again. And I think... I think there's probably not been enough credit for the players that have been that have been part of that, you know, that have managed to achieve that because, you know, winning really isn't easy um, um, at all, you know, and, and to do it consistently, it's incredibly challenging and we've had, you know, we've had some great opponents over the years, you know, some really, really good teams. You know, there's probably a few people in the game might even say that on occasion some other sides have had better players, but, you know, we've got a real will, will to win, you know, we've got a real team unit, you know, we just get a real kind of special thing at the club and, um, you know, I think hats off to, you know, the coaches we've had and the, you know, the playing um, staff that we've had over the years because they've really, you know, they've really achieved some some amazing stuff. And you, ta- you touched briefly on the, you know, the constraints that you've had, so, and that everybody's had, but, you know, you guys are obviously an independent club that are absolutely funding yourselves. How important a part has just pure belief played sometimes? in this winning mentality that's that's sort of inherent in Glasgow City? Yeah, totally. But I think it's, you know, I think a lot of that is, I mean, the, the players definitely have that. You know, we, we have that real kind of uniqueness and you see that when a lot of players join, you know, you come into that unit and you, you know, you immediately, you can tell when a player joins if they're going to be a Glasgow City player. You know, that's, and most of our players that have been there for years, they'll be able to testify to that. You just kind of know if a player comes in and they're, they're kind of up for it and, and they can get to that level and they can train at that intensity. 
and they've got that will to win and that competitiveness um, and the drive to do it. But I think, um, you know, Cass and I as individuals have always been, you know, we've kind of, we've never really looked, looked at barriers. You know, barriers are there for breaking and, you know, we kind of don't take no for an answer. So we're kind of uh, constant, you know, um, I think Cass wants to describe me like a dog with a bone, but, you know, I really kind of am. So, you know, we just keep going and we keep going and we're going and if something's not the way we want it, then we just change it and we just find a way to do things. You know, we never just say, oh, well, that can't be done because we don't have the money to do it. We either find a way to get the money to do it or we find a way for that thing to be free. Back in, back in 1998, what was the, the, the motivation to start this? Because the drive to keep this, like you say, winning's not easy and the, the, the amount that you've done it is incredible. Where did that come from? Where did this passion begin? Oh, I don't know. I think we're just weird. Um, <laughs> obviously, David Alba did that documentary on uh, kind of Cass and I for Glasgow City and probably until that point, I hadn't really thought about it because it's, it's just the way I am. You know, it's just me. But, you know, if I think it was you know, a couple of journalists, journalists that kind of spoke to me afterwards, you know, and kind of were, you know, I haven't watched the documentary, you know, they described it when I was a kid, you know, so when I was like, you know, five, six, seven, um, and I was playing football, you know, at the playground with the boys, we played with my ball, I took the ball, you know, so I suppose it's that aspect of knowing that I then control things. And then, you know, when I went to secondary, you know, there wasn't a team, there wasn't a girls team, and it, it drove me to distraction that there wasn't one. So I then, you know, went and got as a sponsor and and a strip and created a team and that was despite the fact we didn't, you know, we didn't, we didn't have teams to play against but I just wanted a team so even at like 14, 15 I'm away negotiating sponsorship and well, me and my pals went into town and designed our own strip you know so that's kind of probably not normal <laughs> <laughs> so you know it's, it's really not normal but for me it's always seemed normal because it's just me so then you know when I started to play senior football and um, I only played for a year and then I got a bad injury um, you know, so at that point, I'm kind of 19 and I'm starting to look at what the senior game is. Um, and I was playing in the same team as Cass. And, you know, it's like anything you realise, you've got similar opinions to other people. And, you know, we would just both get chatting more and more. And we started to think, God, this could be better. You know, we could do this better. This is, you know, God, we're going to terrible grounds. And, you know, we really could make more of an effort. Maybe players could take it more serious. And we just decided that the easiest thing, rather than try and overhaul the team we were in, because it wasn't, wasn't our club, you know, the best thing to do was to start fresh and create our own. And how important is that bond between you and Cass been? Obviously, it's just grown and grown since then, but I take it you guys just have this understanding of each other and that's how it works? Or do you do you ever clash? Or Yeah, well, we've never fallen out. I mean, we really are the best of friends, but we know each other so well. Um, you know, but a lot of people would probably think we speak to each other harshly. I don't even notice. You know, like, <laughs> We'll go on the phone and, you know, we don't even say hi. We're just like, that. have you done that yet? But it's just the way we are. But uh-huh. We are best friends. You know, we're there for each other on personal things as well as, you know, football things. We're as close as anything. It's just, I don't know. I suppose you just find someone in life you just kind of click with. We have, yeah. very, thankfully, which you kind of need when you're running a club together, we have very similar kind of outlook on a lot of things. You know, so we don't tend to disagree on, it, on an approach to something. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that definitely helps because that, you know, that could be more challenging if one wants to go one way and the other wants to go the other. So we do tend to agree and we both know we both know what our qualities are and equally we remind each other frequently of our faults. That's so important, isn't it, when you're trying to build something and it's great when you've got somebody like that as well. And you talked about there, you can kind of tell when a girl comes in if they've got what it takes to be a Glasgow City player. 
what what does it take what what do you see in people that you think yes you know that you know that they're gonna they're gonna do well for you well I think they have to be ambitious they have they have to be hard working you know so so not not somebody that you know that cuts corners at training or doesn't put the effort in or doesn't turn up in the the best of shape um and by that I mean maybe they've kind of eaten at the wrong time or whatever because you know their teammates will tell them um and it's it's a very, very demanding environment and it can be quite a, a, a tough environment for a young player to come into because youth football sometimes can be a little bit mollycoddling. You know, nobody will really say if you've made a misplaced pass. Come into our training session, you make a misplaced pass. You'll certainly soon, soon know about it. But then at the same time, the players are incredibly defensive about each other and they really look after each other. You know, they all got on really well. They socialise incredibly well. They have a real camaraderie, but I think that comes from the respect they have for each other. And they all know that, you know, when they go onto the pitch, they're all going to work the hardest for each other. There's nobody that's that's out there for themselves. And there's nobody that's not going to put a, a full effort in. And I think, you know, if you have that kind of hard work mentality and you have that kind of, you know, keep going to, you know, the final whistle and, you know, never see die attitude, then that definitely works. But you know, it's it's tough being a Glasgow City player. I mean, it's um, you know, we've you know, it's a wee bit different now because the game's obviously more semi-professional, professional. But you know, in years gone past, when virtually all of our players would have full-time jobs or say they'd all be full-time university students, you know, completely unacceptable to miss a training session. Didn't matter if it was your birthday. Didn't matter if mm-hmm. it was your mother's birthday. Didn't matter what it was. You had to be at training. You know, and your teammates expected that of you. And if everybody was making the same efforts and sacrifices then that's expected of you and that's that's quite a tough environment but if you want to be if you want to be a professional club even at times when you can't afford to be fully professional you need to be and you know we were obviously trying to win league titles every year but we're also trying to compete in Europe and you can't go and compete in Europe against full-time teams if you train and behave like an amateur team so Mm-hmm. You know, really, you know, going back to those times, you know, particularly demanding, and still is for a number of players. You know, I know you've had Joe Love on, you know, you've had Taylor Sinclair on, you know, both those players have full-time jobs. But, you know, they don't, they can't get the opportunity to have had a really bad day at work and be knackered because they've been up since early doors. I mean, for someone like Joe, she'd have been in it, you know, the Emirates back in the day at 6am doing her strength and conditioning, going to work you know, going straight from work to training, you know, she would never miss a training session because that's just mm-hmm. not what you do as a city player. And how much does that say? Like, I always look at situations like that and be mindful of women's game, men's game. I remember speaking to Shelley Kerr about the difference between coaching men and coaching women. And she said to me, women are easier to coach, but tougher to manage, if that makes yeah. sense. How how much do you agree with that sort of statement? And and but I guess a lot of that will be down to competing demands as well. Like you, you like you've just talked about. You know, women are uh, spread more thinly, if you like, in terms of their commitments. than men can fully focus on the game. Yeah, I think it's just different mentalities and, and emotions. And I mean, I, I mean, I've obviously never been. Um, you know, I'm obviously involved in the men's game on, on a day job, but I'm not involved with the personal management relations with players you know you know Jack Ross does that at Hibs you know certainly I'm not involved in that but you know from talking to Scott you know and other managers we've had in the past that have also worked in the men's game they would 100% agree with Shelley you know they find um, you know coaching women women to be very receptive to ideas and very receptive to additional training sessions very receptive to anything if they believe it's going to make them better 
Whereas they've described men being, you know, you'll, you'll train all week, you'll give instructions, but they'll go on the field and do what they want because they think they know best. Or, you know, they're training twice a week and you tell them they're training three times a week and they'll say absolutely no way unless you double my salary. And even then I probably won't because I'm training twice a week. Whereas, you know, women just seem to behave differently. But yeah, I mean, I think that we do seem to have different, men, you know, mentalities and emotions and, and kind of, I think women maybe maybe want to understand things a little bit more. I mean, I could be wrong. I, I always remember um, Scott's first, you'll probably hate me for saying this. I wonder if he even remembers it. I always remember his first kind of, you could say, kind of transfer window. So it was the end of, he joined us kind of midway through and it was the end of that season and I'd come to to have a chat with all the players. You know, we, we've discussed before who we wanted to keep, who and ever, who might be, you know, most risk of leaving, you know, because we've maybe offers coming in from elsewhere. So, you know, always remember uh, he, he, he told me, you know, so he reported back and said, yeah, I've spoken to X-Fine and said he discussed, you know, so-and-so's in for next season, so-and-so's in, and described all the ones that, you know, were in. And that was all good news because it was all the players we wanted to keep. And then about a few days later, he was like, that, eh, I can't, you know, I've said about so-and-so about signing, but, you know, they want to sit down and have a chat. And then this was kind of repeated. And, and he was starting to go and have, like, you know, two hours coffees with them and everything. And he says, I don't understand. And I said, so what was your agreement on them signing? He says, well... We had a brief chat, chat and chain, and you know, we discussed it with a good season, they'd enjoyed it. With the end for next year, I got the thumbs up. I says, No, no, no. But as women, that's not good enough for us. We need the proper chat. You need to sit down with us and have that chat and yeah. actually properly digest the season, properly discuss next season. I said, So, yes, you had a general, I'm in for next year. You can't then mm-hmm. shove in front of somebody and expect them to sign it, you know. So, that was him, like, Oh, that's how the men's game works, you know. Yeah, <laughs> you just absolutely. Are you in, mate? Yeah, I'm in. You know, I think we need a little bit more than that. Um, and certainly, you know, I think um, emotionally women probably struggle to go over things, you know, a wee bit more. There's probably not that whole, you know, you can shout and abuse each other and then, you know, that maybe happens in the men's game and then the next minute you just need to that kind of man up, which to be honest, you know, that's just a kind of bravado that a lot of men put on. I'm sure a lot of them don't want to behave that way. I'm sure a lot of them do kind of need a bit more time to talk through it. But I think women mm-hmm. do want to kind of talk through things a bit more and understand why they happen. And that is one of the big strengths of the women's game as well is the, the relationships that they develop together that in teams usually last a lifetime more often than not, you know, that and that and that's at a, at a grassroots level as well with young girls growing, growing up now, especially with having more role models to look at. And I think that that's a real, real strength at the minute of the game. Yeah, no, 100%. You know, it is. And I was listening to um, Rachel Corsi and Leanne Crichton. They have a, a podcast. Um, and obviously both, well, Rachel, former Glasgow City player, uh, you know, Leanne is a current one. And, you know, just to hear them talking about, you know, they've both gone and played for other teams and played with some of the most well-known players in the game. But, you know, to hear them talking so fondly about teammates to have and, you know, and, and it's it goes back to when they were kids. You know, they're talking about, now they're talking about players that, you know, nine times out of ten people will never have heard of, but they were players that meant something to them at that point in time and they developed a bond despite the fact that they've gone off to superstar careers and, you know, like Rachel played with Hope Solo and Megan Rapino. you know, she's talking about kids when she was 17 or 18 that had an impact on her and, you know, it's, it's I think you do definitely develop kind of friendships for life and football does that, you know, that's been in a team sport, that's why it's such a, a wonderful sport to play. And that's been a recurrent theme through the podcast episodes. I don't know if you've noticed this as well, Joe, but it feels like every 
um, player we've spoken to during lockdown, the thing that keeps them going is these Zoom calls where there's 10 people trying to do the same fitness class and whether it goes well or badly, it, it, it keeps them going. Um, and it's that camaraderie, I think, that's getting them through it. I mean, that's what all, I'm, I'm sure every guest you've had that's a footballer, that's the thing we miss the most, you know, that's, that's the enjoyment, that's the fact you play a team sport invariably, you know, if that wasn't a thing for you, you'd probably do something else, um, so it's definitely the, the thing that everyone misses. And how much in terms of, you've obviously, like you say, we've, we've talked about the fact you've been involved in the women's game for uh, the majority of your life, how, how happy are you or how, how much further do you think there's still to go in terms of the development of the women's game in Scotland? Um, you know, there seems to be a, a sort of rapid acceleration in the last five years, but in terms of where we still have to go, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think we've still got a long way to go. I mean, we're we're still, you know, kind of out with obviously the investment that have come from some teams, you know, that are that are you know men's teams that obviously invest in their women's setup. You know, we we still don't structurally, we're still not in a good place. You know, commercially as a league, we're really not in a good place at all. You know, we're We've kind of, kind of pretty much for the last decade fallen further and further behind other nations that have kind of accelerated forward. Um, you know, which explains why, to be honest, you know, we've been losing our best players kind of hand over foot for, you know, for the kind of last decade. And, you know, that kind of exodus is getting younger and younger every year. Um, so we, we've still got a long way to go, I think. Um, if I'm honest, I think we, a lot of the cracks have been hidden by the fact the national team has done really well. And Glasgow City's done really well in Europe. But really, you know, in terms of the basis of our game here, we should really have been doing that well. And I think that's, as I say, that's covered quite a few of the cracks that have been exposed a bit before. So, you know, we, we definitely need um, a more professional kind of setup at the top end. Um, we certainly need a, a lot more investment. You know, the game's just grown. The, game, the game's just grown beyond what it, it was before and it can't really be sustained in that in that format. So we do need to create, you know, some kind of new structure, whatever that may be, whether it's, you know, trying to emulate, you know, what happened in England, um, you know, with the formulation of the Super League. You know, that was obviously years and years ago now, but, but then the FA put an awful lot of money into that to make it happen. And, you know, sadly, I just don't think we would have the same funds um, coming centrally in Scotland. So do you feel like in the way that the, the women's game has accelerated sort of globally, that Scotland just hasn't kept up with that? No, not not domestically. I think one of the reasons we've done well in Europe is because, you know, clubs like Glasgow City, we've been a well-run club, we've been run professionally, even although, we, you know, for many years, you know, we've not been professional. Um, and obviously we've had some extraordinary performances and some extraordinary players play for us. I think from a national team level, I think... You know, we've we've got a real kind of good crop at the moment that has just kind of come through. I think we've always had we've always had good players in the national team, and I think we've always, to be honest, had world class players. You know, we had Julie Fleeting for you know a long period of time. We then you know Kim Little. You know, so we've we've not we've not not had outstanding individual players, but we've never really had the depth of quality before, um, and we've kind of got this real good crop where you know. We've got a group of older players, you know, whether it's it's kind of, you know, Rachel Corsi, Joe Loves, Leanne Crichton's, really Lauder, she'll hate me for including her in that category. But, you know, really good quality, experienced players, but equally good young players, you know. In years gone past, the Scotland team could be quite old, you know, have one good player, you know, we've got a real crop of really, really good balance um, and, it, and, and real strength and depth. I mean, there's... There's players that, you know, I can't believe sometimes the quality of them are sitting on the bench for the national team or sometimes don't even get selected. We've just got that mm-hmm. many players. 
But a lot of that has come from, you know, I think just, I don't know whether it's luck, you get good players at a good time, but we've, we do. Um, and then obviously the, the growth of the game professionally elsewhere, a lot of them at that right point in their, their age and their time of career, they've managed to go and play professionally at that kind of, you know, young age. And then they've had all the benefits of playing in that professional environment. But I think what worries me is, is I don't see currently where we're going to backfill that. You know, I don't think, I don't think the game here is structured well enough for that to be backfilled as, as good as it could be. You know, so particularly if we look at what England's doing in the Super League, you know, they spent a number of years building that up into, you know, the kind of the kind of commercial arm that it is, the strength that it is. You know, they then moved to two leagues, but they've they've now diverted their attention into the age groups under that. So, you know, investment in all the academies because they see that they've got a really really strong top end, but they need the youngsters coming through to be really fit and strong and equally capable. And they've now probably got, you know, an environment for the reserve teams. Um, which is still way better than our environment for our, our Premier League teams, you know, in Scotland. So, you know, they're kind of getting that. And our, our kind of youth game at the moment is still very grassroots. And, you know, that's pretty much what needs to to, uh, to backfill the, the, the national team. Um, so I think, we've, yeah, I think we've still got a lot of work to do. I'm not trying to be too pessimistic because, you know, I think mm. we have got a great product and it's going the right way with investment. But I think, I think we've got, you know, we've got an awful long way to go uh, to have all those that are involved in the game to sit back and say, right, you know, we've got an amazing product. The structure behind it's fantastic. Uh, you know, we don't have that as yet. And I guess a lot of that comes as well, though, you know, in terms of Scotland with an appetite for the game. And I've seen, you know, there's been a lot more people involved and excited about, I mean, I think it was the one year anniversary this week of a record crowd at Hamden to go and watch Scotland women play. Um so a lot of that will be boosted by an appetite for that great product as well, I suppose, though, because the investment will, will then come at that point, I would imagine. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, it's been fantastic, the exposure, you know. I mean, I'm kind of famous for, I mean, we had this in our strips a number of years ago, you know, you can't be what you can't see. And, you know, the lack of, I mean, it's fantastic you guys have this podcast, you know, but for years we kind of, we literally had nothing. And, and even, even although it's getting better, it's kind of still not great. You know, you know, we've got BBC Alba, you know, announcing they're going to show, you know, the Frown Bundesliga live. I mean, we are nowhere near close to having our games every week live, but now we've got, now we've got, you know, leagues, other women's leagues in other countries getting beamed live in, uh, you know, to a Scottish audience on a weekly basis, which is great for those of us that love the game. But, you know, it's frustrating for me that, you know, we're still kind of miles off of that domestically. But having the, having the World Cup on TV, you know, accessible was really the first time the game has ever been accessible here. Um, you know, the previous World Cup, um, because it was in Canada, the games were on incredibly late at night. Um, and there wasn't as much interest. It was a bit, you know, kind of BBC red button stuff um, because Scotland weren't in it. But, you know, I think that Scotland being in this World Cup, the kind of coverage we had, and also the fact the women's game was, from a media point of view, in terms of kind of broadcast, treated the same as the men. So there was the same amount of cameras at the game. There's the same amount of commentators, co-commentators. Because I'm sure as everybody's getting to experience now watching the Bundesliga, football is a, a media sport. You know, it's a broadcast sport. It's a spectator sport. If you watch some of the most talented footballers in the world run about a football pitch with no audience whatsoever, it ain't that attractive. And the women's game has suffered from that for years because not only was there nobody in the stadium, there was a single camera trying to follow the action. And, um, you know, a lot of football now is a bit like watching a Hollywood movie. You know, there's angles coming in from everywhere, there's replays, there's close-ups. It's 
sometimes you can make a, a bad game look, you know, pretty decent. Um, and that's got a lot to do with the production. Um, so for the World Cup, actually, to have a really good production, I think people actually got, you know, with massive crowds there, people got to experience football what they're used to. Because when we all watch football, we watch a production. So sometimes then you compare that to what you see in a women's game, it makes a women's game look poor, but really it's not. Which is why most people that physically go along to a game tend to say they've had the most wonderful experience. And some people that for years watched the occasional one on TV, you know, had a completely different opinion on the game. You hit the nail on the head with the with the World Cup stuff last year, and it did it make make it. Sorry, that's a small child. Um, <laughs> it did make it look, um, you know, very glitzy and glamorous, and like you say, more like the the platform that we're we're used to seeing with men's football. And it's having that, you know, you see more and more women as pundits in the men's game as well, and uh, it's just that sort of awareness, isn't it? Yeah, totally. I mean, 28.1 million people in the UK watch the Women's World Cup, you know, so it goes back to my biggest argument. You make it accessible, people will watch it and enjoy it, you know, but it's it's never been accessible before. Yeah. Scotland, you know, it's never been accessible for us. You know, the Women's FA Cup final in England has been on the TV for years, you know, probably about 15, 20 years. Um, you know, it's only really the last couple of years we've started to have our National Cup final on TV you know, and it's for BBC Alba, who are actually the ones that are, you know, getting involved in doing it. But, um, yeah, unless you make the game accessible, it's very hard to get followers to, to follow you. Um, you know, the amount of people that will say to me, oh, I wish I knew when you were playing or how did I get there? Because it's just not there. We don't we don't make it available. It's not, in, it's not in reams of newspapers from the Wednesday before, so you can't help but know that there's a game on. Usually, if anything, it might be mentioned after the event. So, and the flip side to that as well was that we had finally a Scotland team to cheer in a major competition, which, you know, regardless of whether it was the men or women, you found like absolutely everyone was just so excited uh, to be to be watching, doesn't matter who it was, in a Scotland strip and getting behind their country. Yeah, no, I think, uh, no, it's, it's a special thing being at World Cup. I mean, I was at France 98 following the men's team, so... Um, you know, it really is special. And I also went to the Euros, you know, when Scotland women reached the Euros. But it just, it was just different at the World Cup. You know, World Cups just are different for whatever reason, who knows. Um, but they are just different. And it was, it, it was fantastic. And, you know, Scotland did incredibly well. You know, we had a really, really tough group. But it's, uh, you know, just, well, it's very Scottish, isn't it? That, um, <laughs> yeah. I'll talk about it. Yeah, we'll, yeah. I love that that crosses genders, just that glorious failure. It doesn't matter. Um, and getting back to, to Glasgow City, how, how do you feel about, um, we are talking about investment earlier in the league, Rangers and Celtic, specifically at the start of this season, both gone professional. Um, do you see that as a positive or a negative, A, for the game, and, and B, for Glasgow City? Because I guess on the one hand, you, keep want, you want to win, you don't want to, you don't want to um, lose this run you're on, um, but it must be great to see that kind of investment coming in, I suppose. It is, yeah, no, it's fantastic. You know, the more investment we can have in the game, the better. You know, we need to have, we need to have good, if we want to grow our league and make it commercially attractive and, you know, make it the best spectator sport we can, we need to have good players playing here. And there's enough opportunities now for good players to go in every other country and, you know, become a professional footballer. So we need to create that environment here. But as I was saying, we'll have that continued train of our talent. So, you know, it's, it's fantastic and, you know, hopefully that, that grows and grows. You know, obviously Hibs, you know, have invested in, in some of their players as well with some kind of, you know, semi-professional contracts. So 
um, you know, I, I think it's it, it's brilliant. You know, even see for for our signing, you know, foreign players um, and things. So it's it's good. And I think the stronger league we have, the more investment we have in it, the more you know some of the marketing power of some of these bigger clubs get behind to showcase their women. Um, you know, absolutely fantastic. And in terms of your hopes for this season, obviously it was cut very premature after one league game. Um, obviously not a, an ideal result for yourself. So it was a bit of a sickener. Um, what do you hope for this season? Do you, do you are you happy to just would you call it off like you did down south, or do you want to pick it up and continue? No, I mean we've been talking about that as, as a league a lot. You know, as a group, we come together um, and how. I mean, I think all of us kind of want to play football, so I think. I think it's pretty clear that we can't really continue with what we had. You know, it was a kind of non-starter that didn't really start. You know, we probably need to rip it up and start again, um, you know, and have a kind of brand new league. So, you know, we're discussing at the moment how we do that. So I think if we can get back to playing football soon, I think certainly for the very top end of the game, so SWPL 1 and 2, we would look at perhaps flipping back into, you know, the men's season date, so kind of August to May, um, because... You know, football can come back relatively soon. It's going to be impossible for us to try and squeeze the games in in the old calendar, particularly given there's so much getting put into that. All Scotland's qualifiers are now in that calendar. Our Champions League games are all now in that calendar. So that calendar is even shorter than it used to be. So it's going to be impossible to kind of truncate everything into there. And the league's far too competitive and there's too much at stake to play a significantly reduced number of games, you know, that that's not going to help um, the professionalism of our game. If we say, right, let's all play 10 games and call it quits, you know, that's that's not going to work either. So I think a lot will depend how soon we can get back. And I think certainly our, our club's view is as soon as we can get back, we'll make a decision on the league. And if that means that the league then changes to a more traditional, just the top end, I don't think it would be right for the, the youth end. I think we keep that as it is. Then maybe we just reverse. Because the reality is, we need to have, uh, you know, Glasgow City is, is champions. Uh, we'll play when this is how ridiculous it is because they're still to finish this year's, sorry, last season's Champions League. But once we finish that, we've got this season's Champions League coming up to start playing. Um, but by next May, we need to have a league winner that will go into the 21-22 Champions League. So we simply can't wait, you know. So as soon as we can get back playing, then I think we'll just try and do as best we can to have that season in that time and then make a decision as to where that falls. If, if, we, if we change completely to a winter season again or we somehow keep to the, the traditional but maybe start earlier so we can finish by May, who knows? It's all very, very yeah. complicated. But I think, you know, at the top end, we want to play. We want to get back playing as soon as we can. Um, we certainly don't want to be sitting waiting until... Uh, next March to start again because one it's not practical and two we don't want to do it um, so we'll just see what happens Yeah there's all that uncertainty as well about player contracts I was reading more so down south affecting you know women's futures and their earning and all that type of thing so there's lots but it's interesting hearing you say about reverting back to a winter league when all the you know the talk in the men's league is about we want summer football and um, so you know I guess as well it's it depends what everyone thinks is best for the game but also looking at it as an opportunity, I suppose, too. A fresh start, almost. Yeah, I think, I mean, if you talk to... I mean, for Glasgow City, it's it's not as relevant, you know, because we're not attached to a men's club. But, you know, clearly those teams that are, are, are you know, traditionally men's teams, it would, it would suit them commercially to run the same, 
you know, they can level up on contract. You know, running opposing seasons doesn't doesn't work as good for them as it could. So they'd certainly 100% want to go to whatever the men's season was. I think for us, um, you know, if it wasn't for this pandemic, we, you know, it's probably slightly, I don't want to say it's slightly irrelevant, but it's not as important. I think if we want to have, we need to be serious and think if we want to have a national team that constantly beats major, major tournaments, having a summer league doesn't really work. Because last year we went over two months without football. Now that's just not sustainable. You know, it's not sustainable for, you know, the mental health of players that suddenly have to take a two-month hiatus and, and not get involved in the game. That's very challenging to keep yourself going. And obviously we want to have a national team that does reach major championships. We want to have an under-19s that reach major championships. And if we continually do that, then you have a major, major disruption in your calendar where you've got to give time for the national team to go and prepare and then obviously compete. So if you lose six weeks on every second year in your 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 in your fixtures, that's really challenging to try and make it work. And at that point, it just doesn't work and there's no point in having it. Well, hopefully we can get back to it sooner rather than later. Laura, thank you so much for joining us on the pod this week. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Um, and hopefully, like we say, everyone stays safe, but we can get back to it as soon as possible. Great. No, thanks for having me. Enjoyed it.